You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, we're really pleased to have with us today uh, Kimberly Martin, who Kimberly is a professor at Bernard College Columbia University, specializing in international relations, international security, Russia, and the global politics of climate change. Uh, she's a, a faculty member and an executive committee member of Columbia's Har- Harriman Institute for Russian, Eur- Eurasian, and East European Studies, and the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. Um, you're also, uh, uh, um, Kimberly, I see, uh, have connections to the Council on Foreign Relations uh, and the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and you've been doing some really interesting uh, research and work on Russia's Wagner Group, which is the topic of today's discussion. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So, Kimberly, I'd like to really just kind of get started. Um, um, you know, for our, our institute, the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, the Wagner Group first came on our radar, really being deployed in, in Mali and, and reports of atrocity crimes committed against civilians and, and expansion to other parts of Africa. Um, but but it's really kind of taken, I guess, center stage with the war in Ukraine. And, and we like to, to know, you know, with what happened recently with uh, Prigozhin um, leading some kind of mutiny uh, and, and, and leaving the front lines and going into Russia, what would happen in the course of those two days and, 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 and what should we make of, of what occurred? Because to us, we're not quite clear and we really want to have you kind of explain to us what happened and, and, and what's going on behind the scenes. I don't think anybody knows for sure what's going on behind the scenes. What uh, appears to have happened is that Prigozhin honestly believed that he had enough power uh, and enough of Putin's ear that he could um, stage what he thought of as being a protest march to Moscow and in response to that, get a change in the leadership in the Russian defense ministry and the Russian general staff. And that seems like something that no reasonable person would have done. I suspect what happened is that his head got too big for his roof. When we're talking about um, the way things operate in Russia, you have protection from somebody who has more power than you do. That's referred to as a roof. Prigozhin has had a roof under Putin ever since the early 1990s in St. Petersburg. Um, Putin was completely responsible for the rise of his career um, and for his ability to be a military contractor, starting out uh, doing cleaning contracting and catering contracting, and then moving on to uh, being the person who was contracting for Wagner Group security forces. And Prigozhin apparently believed he had more power than he actually did and seems to have just grossly miscalculated um, in the events from uh, from June 24th. Kimberly, could you tell us what was the role of the Wagner Group in the war in Ukraine um, and, and what will be at stake now? Sure. So there have been several different roles that the Wagner Group has taken in Ukraine. In uh, 2014, 2015, when we had the um, smaller uh, Russian and Russian-supported incursion into eastern Ukrainian territory, the Wagner Group uh, at that time, under the leadership of Dmitry Utkin, its first commander, um, was much smaller scale. And uh, it engaged in essentially mafia-like activities to try to convince uh, especially Cossacks, but other people who had their own independent uh, little security 
security forces in eastern Ukraine uh, that rather than seeking independence from both Russia and Ukraine, which some of them apparently wished, um, that they had to go over to the Russian side and they succeeded in that. Um, uh, then also in 2015, there was some use of Wagner as uh, infantry forces uh, to support uh, the, the smaller incursion that Russia and Russia-supported forces were making in eastern Ukraine at that time. In 2022 in Ukraine, um, uh, Wagner worked alongside the Russian uniformed military in Bucha, the place where some of the, the really terrible um, human rights violations, uh, torture, massacres happened uh, when the local population and the local uh, officials did not wish to go along with the Russian occupation. Um, and then uh, starting in late 2022 and uh, what they did mostly in 2023 was to uh, be used as infantry in the large-scale uh, attempts to take first Solidar um, and then Bakhmut. And the reason that Wagner was very successful in both of those cases is that they used um, prison labor. Um, prisoners were told that they would be, um, uh, they would have their sentences commuted and they'd be released and pardoned um, if they fought with Wagner for six months and survived. Um, and that appears to be what actually happened to those who did survive. And um, they were told that there was no turning back, uh, that they had no choice except to move forward and that if they turned back, they would be shot. Um, often they were not given a sufficient amount of weapons. We had stories of several prisoners being in one building and sharing like one Kalashnikov between them. Um, but they had every incentive to push forward, push forward, push forward. Um, and so that is why Wagner was so successful in both of those areas, but at an incredibly high cost of human lives. They have not been in Ukraine in the actual combat since May. Um, and so the mutiny itself did not have any immediate effect on what was happening in Russia's prosecution of its war in Ukraine. Uh, what is uh, still to be seen is whether the events of, you know, at this point two weeks ago, a uh, week and a half ago, will have an effect on uh, Russian military morale um, in Ukraine um, and whether people will start doubting the leadership of Putin. You're listening to the Wagner Group Muni Explained with uh, Kimberly Martin. For those of you who aren't following Kimberly, please give her a follower on Twitter. Um, Kimberly, I'd like to, to go to um, the next question. And, and this is what really kind of surprised us. We saw that, you know, in the lead up to the mutiny, uh, Prigozhin kind of countered Putin's narrative and justifications for launching an invasion of Ukraine, saying that they were based on lies uh, and, and um, fed to him through Krem the Kremlin's top brass. Do you think his speech uh, and his and his countering the the narrative will have any effect on Russians and Russian propaganda? Um, I don't think it'll have any effect. Well, I mean, we haven't seen Putin change his justification for the war, and I'd be highly doubtful that he would do so. I think that was one of Prigozhin's biggest mistakes. It was not merely going on this march. It was essentially questioning the entire foundation that Putin had laid for why he had um, decided to launch the war in February 2022. So that was the probably one of the stupidest things that Prigozhin did. And I think it's probably not accidental that we haven't seen uh, Prigozhin since then. Uh, you know, we've, we've heard that Prigozhin is in uh, Belarus. Early on, there was a report that he was in Belarus in a hotel with no windows. And people said, oh, that was so he couldn't be pushed out of a window. But if you think about what is a hotel with no windows, a hotel with no windows is a prison. Um, and so we don't know for sure where Prigozhin is. 
um, you know, um, some of the the uh, military, um, the, the, the pro-military social media people in Russia were complaining that Prigozhin got off too easily. But we don't actually know how Prigozhin got off because we haven't seen him. Um, and I think that is the, the, the single action that he took that was um, most treacherous uh, in Putin's eyes was questioning Putin's justification for the war. Kimberly, Putin has long presented himself as a strong man who doesn't negotiate. Uh, what weaknesses of Putin and the Russian state apparatus did the mutiny expose? I don't think the negotiation was the weak part because we don't have any evidence that Putin himself negotiated. Um, although it was said that Lukashenko, um, the president of Belarus, stepped in to be the, de the deciding factor um, from uh, the, you know, again, these are just rumors that are coming out, but from people who are, are pretty good at doing investigative reporting and probably have um, connections in the, in the, the Kremlin circles. Um, the, the best um, explanation that we've gotten is that Putin was just sort of standing back and not not taking part in these negotiations at all, and that it was done by members of Putin's circle. Um, but, you know, um, it would have been foolish for Putin to just launch uh, a military action against Prigozhin in response to the March on Moscow for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it sort of got, I think, misportrayed in some of the media. There is no evidence that Prigozhin actually had 25,000 people marching in tanks to Moscow. Um, instead, he had probably a much smaller group than that. Um, many of whom stayed back in Rostov um, to um, sort of maintain his home base in Rostov. And that probably it was more like a couple thousand who were marching to Moscow. And most of them did not have tanks. There were some tanks, um, but most of them were probably in um, just regular military vehicles that were not reinforced. And they were going on public roadways. Um, um, and so, you know, th there were ordinary civilians going about their everyday tasks who were mixed in with this march to Moscow completely accidentally. And then we did see at the start what happened when there were military forces called out against Prigozhin, which is that Prigozhin's guys shot them down and killed 15, you know, probably 15. We don't know for sure what the exact number is, but probably 15 pilots and people who were associated with the Russian Air Force and or the Russian um, helicopters that were involved in that um, the monitoring and perhaps attack on Prigozhin um, early on um, when he was in Rostov or the Rostov area. Um, and I don't think it would have been in Putin's interest to have uh, an actual military battle happen. So I know that there are commentators who've um, taken this and said, oh, look, Putin's willing to negotiate. He's willing to negotiate on Ukraine, too. That's just not correct. I don't think that there's any reason why Putin would negotiate on Ukraine. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think at this point, his, he staked his entire career on success in Ukraine. And there's no way in the world that he's going to back down or make any concessions. So, so going in that direction, um, with this mutiny and the, the I guess, sidelining of uh, the Wagner group, or at least their leadership, what, what impact will this have uh, on Russia's war in Ukraine? Will it will weak, weaken Russian forces? Um, does it put a big hole in, in what was on the front lines there? How do you see this um, playing out? No, it puts no hole on what was in the front line because Wagner hasn't been on the front line since May. Um, and the technique that Wagner used of recruiting prisoners to go fight on the front line, we have seen that since last fall, the uniformed Russian military forces have been doing exactly the same thing. So it's entirely possible that at some point uh, Russia is going to run out of troops. It may have to go to a full mobilization of society, which Putin would rather avoid. But if that happens, it really has nothing to do with Wagner. Um, Wagner was just one piece 
piece of the puzzle, but Wagner has not been part of that front line since May. Um, but the, the way that it may have an impact is if uh, Putin's authority gets weakened, um, if people who are being asked to go fight on the front start questioning things. So that's not going to happen in the immediate term, but it may happen in the longer term. And I think that's what we're waiting to see what that effect might be. Um, I know, um, you know, uh, Progozin uh, mentioned over and over again how um, how not just his uh, troops in the Wagner group, but also Russian soldiers in general, weren't given accurate, uh, you know, good supplies of weaponry, food, and so forth. Uh, what is what should we look at as 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 the case of how the Russian state is supplying uh, Russian soldiers? Um, in the war, are, is there really a big problem, or 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 is it is it overstated by the media? So I think there are two ways to interpret those Prigozhin claims. Um, it's possible that they were true. It's also possible that Prigozhin used those complaints to stockpile weapons that he could then use in this march to Moscow. And I think we don't know what the answer to that is, but we do know that the Russian state has said that they, Putin has said himself, um, that Wagner is going to be, um, is, is going to have all of its heavy weapons taken away from it and given to the regular uniformed forces. Um, I don't think that what we've seen is a, a shortage of Russian weaponry per se. I think that because this war has turned out to be much bigger than Russia was expecting, and they didn't have um, the industry at first mobilized to produce the weapons for those that were lost in battle and for those that needed repairs and so forth. Um, we did see shortfalls in Russian weaponry um, as time went on over the, the course of the war. Uh, we know that, for example, Russia has um, tried to get drones from Iran and perhaps tried to get some weaponry from North Korea. Um, so, it, it, you know, there, there are, are challenges with Russia having the weapon. But I wouldn't take Prigozhin's claims as necessarily being the truth about the status of Prigozhin's forces, although we do know that there were not enough weapons for the prisoners, um, just because there were people who were able to go and interview them and, and demonstrate that they were um, sharing Kalashnikovs in the field. So they were doing a lot with very little weaponry. Um, Kimberly, my last question to you before we, we see if anyone in the audience wants to, to pose a question. I, I, I mentioned earlier that the, the Wagner Group mercenaries have been operating in Africa, including the Central African Republic, Libya, Mali. In many cases, they're there to help strongmen, put down local uprisings, and influence domestic politics. Um, Wagner mercenaries were also used, as we know, in Latin America to bolster Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro regime. What no, will the consequences <laughs> be of the mutiny in these regions? Yeah, no, uh, they probably were not in Venezuela. There was a single Reuters report that made that argument, um, and it was never followed up by any additional news sources. Um, and a Russian investigative journalist spent a long time on the ground, somebody who's an independent um, investigator who's very well respected. Um, and what she discovered is that there were a variety of Russian security forces on the ground, but no evidence that Wagner was there at all. Um, and in fact, there's no evidence whatsoever that Prigozhin had any economic interests in Latin America or in Venezuela. Um, um, and so that may have turned out to be a red herring. Um, the Reuters report came completely from interviews on the ground um, and people may have had their own reasons for um, allowing people to think that um, the Wagner group was in Venezuela. But that is it's questionable at best. Um, so the places that we know that uh, Wagner is currently in place are um, Syria, Libya, Sudan, uh, the Central African Republic and Mali. Um, as you said, in the Central African Republic and Mali and for the warlord Khalifa Haftar in uh, eastern Libya, 
their purpose in being there is to give support to the current regime that the regime could not get in any other way. Um, they um, have both, um, you know, engaged in uh, battles against uh, rebel forces and have uh, engaged in information campaigns to keep the current regimes in power. They've been very successful in the Central African Republic. Um, we are yet to see whether they will be successful in Mali. I think there are more challenges in Mali uh, uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that um, Mali is fighting, uh, the, the current uh, junta in Mali is fighting two Islamist insurgents that are not related to each other simultaneously. Um, and also um, the uh, raw materials that Wagner is used to getting and that probably they've gone to Mali for, for the gold, um, it's going to be a lot harder for them to get because the major part of the Malian gold uh, industry is dominated by uh, firms from uh, Canada, uh, the United Kingdom and South Africa, who are very sophisticated, very used to being in uncertain uh, environments in unstable places around the world. Um, and then the ones that were assigned, as far as we know, by contract to the Wagner Group by the Malian Junta are um, artisanal mines where people just sit and sift things by hand. Um, and they are all under the control of rebel groups. And so it's very unlikely that uh, the Wagner group is, is, would be able to get a lot of profit there. So I think it remains to be seen how successful they'll be in Mali. Um, I think, you know, um, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov came off and said that um, uh, we welcome uh, our continuing relationship with these African countries. Um, and I, I think that... Um, Quite frankly, um, Prigozhin is going to be pretty easily replaceable if that turns out to be uh, what the Russian state is deciding to do. The only questions that we'd have are um, whether Prigozhin kept information in his head about how the contracts worked and therefore um, somebody stepping into his shoes would have a hard time replicating um, exactly who got paid off how much in order to have the contracts work. That's a real possibility that there might be some... Um, you know, a transition period that would be somewhat difficult for somebody to, to fill in because of the, the need to get up to speed very quickly on information. Although because we know that the Wagner Group has been very tightly um, connected to the Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU, I would guess that they have always had backups in place. I would guess that they have all kinds of ways of getting that information. And so I would think that that probably is not going to be too much of a problem um, outside of perhaps in the short term. The other um, question that we don't know is how much these people were loyal to Prigozhin. Um, and remember, Prigozhin has no battle experience. He's not a military commander. He was not even a particularly good entrepreneur. He's not really an oligarch. He was a middleman. He was um, the, the pe person who was responsible for seeing that, that people got the correct money, and he was responsible for the contracting and the recruiting. Um, it is possible that people will be so loyal to that, him that, he, that they would not fight for anybody else. But on the other side, on the other hand, all these people know exactly what they've been doing. They know they've been fighting for Russia. They know that the relationship has been there with the Russian military intelligence agency. Many of the higher level people um, that have been working with Prigozhin themselves have a background being um, special operations, Spetsnaz uh, forces for the GRU, the Russian military intelligence agency. They understand what's happening um, and they don't really have anything else to do. Um, and so um, I think it's I, I think, again, there might be some um, short term difficulties in, in figuring out loyalty. But I would guess that these locations are going to be important enough to Russia going forward um, that Russia is going to find a way to make them work. Thank you for that detailed analysis and briefing, Kimberly. I just now we're almost uh, at the end of our, our time for the Twitter space. But I wonder if anyone in the audience has a question or a comment. If you do, you can, um, you can, there's a 
there's a function you can ask to to be a speaker, and we'd happy to have you ask a question to Kimberly. Um, Kimberly, is there I, had a, I had a quick question, Kimberly. How would you um how would you describe the Wagner group? Is it a mercenary group? Is it like typically typically like Russian? There's, uh, how is it funded, and how does it really? operates sure it's it's a semi-state group so it's not really a private military company it's not equivalent to western style private military companies in that it is a creature of the russian state um and so everything we know is that in ukraine and putin himself said this publicly um sergey lavrov essentially said it publicly as well um it has been funded in ukraine by the russian state by the russian defense ministry and by the contract that um, Prigozhin also had through his Concord um, catering group um, to do catering for the Russian military in Ukraine um, and probably in Russia as well. Um, as far as we know, in terms of how it's been funded abroad, it's again been funded by contracts that have come either from the states where it has served um, or in the case of Libya, we also know that there's evidence that it was actually funded by the United Arab Emirates. Um, and so it has had state contractors for what it has been doing. Um, there is nothing that is actually called the Wagner Group. Uh, the media has started reporting that the Wagner Group registered in Russia in 2022. It did not. Um, there is a public registry that you can go to in Russia of every firm that has ever registered as a corporation in Russia. And I checked two days ago, Wagner never registered as a corporation in Russia. Um, and so it, it doesn't actually exist. Um, and so the, all of the contracting has been done through uh, various of Prigozhin's front companies um, and all of the contracting outside of Ukraine um, has been done in very close uh, working relationship with diplomats and um, other ministry officials, like, for example, in Syria, it was the Russian energy ministry um, who actually were standing behind the contracts for Wagner Group activities. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. Does anyone else have a question? Um, people are shy today. Uh, we will be editing this after and putting on our podcast um, podcast channel so people can listen to it again. Uh, but I don't see um, uh, anyone else asking. So what I'm going to say, Kimberly, is just thank you from the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I enjoyed speaking with you. And we're going to be hosting, this is all part of a lead up to the Montreal International Security Summit we're hosting in uh, Montreal in October. So um, we're hoping to bring people together to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what it means to human rights and global security. So thank you everyone for listening and we hope to uh, see you in person in Montreal.